Bros and Bows Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse. And before we get started in the episode, I got some business to plug out. We have A3 Archery Custom Bowstrings. If you're looking for custom bowstrings, check out A3 Archery at www.a3archery.com. These guys are putting custom back in custom strings and introducing an industry-leading proprietary process called Pre-Cycle Shot Technology. Use code BBB15 for 15% off. And next we have is uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. So this is a really cool organization that helps out with um, conservation efforts. And uh, I'll give you a little bit about what they do. Backcountry Hunters and Anglers seeks to ensure North America's outdoor heritage of hunting and fishing in a natural setting through education and work on behalf of, of wild public lands, waters, and wildlife. So what they're trying to do is really push the public land um, for all hunters to get out there, anglers, outdoorsmen, and truly enjoy the outdoors and for what it can really give you with public land and uh, trying to help the environment at the same time. So hope you guys can go ahead and join with them. It's a great organization and uh, hope to see you there the next uh, night. Welcome to the Beers, Bros, and Bows podcast. I'm your host, Jesse, and uh, today I got a really cool guest on here. I got uh, Dr. Chris Jenkins. What's going on, sir? Hey, uh, life is good. How are you doing today, Jesse? I'm doing great. Just enjoying the uh, first couple weekends of early season and getting out there and trying to enjoy it. And uh, First time hitting some WMA is kind of exclusively doing that now. I've, I've become pretty interested in, in wanting to get out there and uh, see what's different than, than private land, see how much harder it is. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, It's been feeling like fall a little bit up here in the mountains, which has been real nice. And, Lucky. And then uh, talk, <laughs> talk, talking about, yeah, you, you couldn't get me down there. To, anyways, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, uh, I mean, Georgia's public land system, uh, they've done a real, I mean, it's mostly a private land state as we all know, but, uh, I think Georgia's done a really good job at providing a lot of public land and it's well distributed across the state. So I think that's, uh, I think that's been great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, just getting into it and, and trying and seeing that Georgia, how much it has to offer. Uh, I've been going to uh, Paulding WMA, and that seems like seems to be one of the bigger ones. I mean, it is huge. I, I I just didn't realize like how much, like how much I could really get lost in there, and just and just go and enjoy myself. So I, you know, like I said earlier, I mean, getting into the WMA thing, I, I'm definitely going to go and do that. Uh, getting into probably try to turkey hunt next year and use that, utilize that for for scouting methods and actually get out there and try it and and just learn more about that and play the play more of the chess match with the the elusive whitetail that I cannot seem to find. Uh, yeah, that, uh, I've never been to Paulding. I've never actually hunted it. We were talking about maybe doing a, uh, BHA kind of like group hunt for all the membership and trying to get a bunch of people out there. So, um, stay tuned. That might be a spring thing too. So, oh, yeah. um, maybe we can all get out there together. So, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. I, I speaking with Mark and, and Nathan and stuff and I'm posted from what Mark told me, apparently I'm supposed to go duck hunting with him in November. He's He's got a pretty cool spot that nobody goes with him to. So I'm just going to try to learn from him as much as I can and and uh, try to catch some hunts with some of you guys, some of the members, and and uh, just be part of that community a little bit more. I really enjoy it. I'm really glad I found a BHA out of all the other clubs. And then that's not, no nick on the other clubs. It's just this one just seemed more inclusive to trying to teach new hunters and people like me who are very brand new to all this to – to get out there and try it anyways. Yeah, that's great. Well, if, if Mark is, uh, you know, is one of the people who is just a waterfowl master, so, uh, he'd be a good guy to go with. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree obviously, but I mean, BHA is just an incredible organization and, uh, focused on maintaining access for all of us, for the common man. Uh, so we all have these opportunities to hunt fish and mm -hmm. hike and do everything we love, uh, well into the future. Yeah, and it's uh, um, really interesting to me because I was listening to a podcast not too long ago um, from uh, East Meets West, and he had a, uh, a forestry guy on there that it was his buddy, and he, and it's kind of it's kind of cool to see the flip side of that coin of how much there are a lot of private lands out there that need hunters on them to keep up with the forestry that's out there, and I I, I 
really like that one because that, that kind of just shows you a different side of the, you know, different side of the coin of, of hunting, you know, public versus private. There's a little bit more that kind of goes into it other than the regular stigma of like just private land, you know. So yeah, it's very, yeah, very definitely. interesting. And I, you know, I, I hunt a lot of public land all over the country and certainly all over Georgia, but, um, you know, I hunt a fair amount of private land as well. Here mm-hmm. in Georgia, we have a property in South Georgia and I spend a lot of time hunting there as well. So, um, yeah, it's all good. And there's a lot of nuance and issues with all of it, whether mm-hmm. it's public, private. So, yeah, we, uh, we actually got our, um, some land down there in South Georgia as well. Um, undisclosed location, but, uh, <laughs> we got, a <laughs> we got a, a spot that the, uh, that me and my, uh, my father-in-law and my brother-in-law go to, uh, that we're going to start. It's a new piece of property out there down South and, um, it's like 400 acres. So I haven't even, we haven't even begun to even scratch that surface of that place and see what it holds. I mean, there's a lot of waterways that run through there. So there's a lot of cool e-scouting you could do, but I haven't been able to actually put boots on the ground down there and, and go check it out. But, um, Chris, so before we uh, get too far in the weeds here, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself. <laughs> we kind of flew past yeah, that and yeah. <laughs> uh, tell people about what you got going on. Yeah, so my name is uh, Chris Jenkins, and uh, for my day job, I am the uh, CEO of a wildlife uh, conservation nonprofit uh, that's based here in Georgia called the Oriane Society. And uh, the Oriane Society does, you know, basically science and on the ground conservation and we do it for uh you know a a very and oftentimes maligned group of animals but we work primarily with rare reptiles and amphibians so things such as frogs and turtles Mm. um, and snakes but um, having said that we do a lot of things uh here in georgia in particular that uh that really benefit everybody whether you're a hunter or an angler or somebody who likes to go out and look for snakes so uh, for example you know a lot of the new wmas that have been popping up over the last you know five years we've played a a pretty major role in that Uh, we do a lot of we have our own uh, land management teams with like foresters and uh, fire teams and we go out and do prescribed fire on public and private land, we're helping manage some of these WMAs and, you know, basically managing the habitat for not just snakes, but also deer and turkeys and everything else. So that's my day job. I run that organization. Um, I founded that probably well in, in, uh, in 2008. So we're about 13 years old now and, and that's going really well. Um, and I'm also involved in a lot of other, uh, nonprofits in different ways, probably the one that's most relevant is what we've been talking about. And that's mm-hmm. backcountry hunters and anglers. And um, I was a long term, long time uh, Southeast chapter member. And then a couple of years ago, uh, when the Southeast began to split up into individual state chapters, um, I became the founding chairman of the Georgia chapter. Um, so I helped create that. And then uh, most recently, uh, I was invited to serve on the North American board. Uh, so I am uh, now one of the board members for the overall organization uh, of backcountry hunters and anglers. Wow. Dang. So you got your hands full. <laughs> How do you and find I should, time to hunt? I should say that um, uh, <laughs> I hunt almost every day. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hunt fish. I hunt fish like literally, uh, no exaggeration, well over 150 days a year. Um, and part of the secret to that is I was going to say, I live in uh, North Georgia. I live in the Chattahoochee National Forest. And so um, it's very convenient for me to say, go out and turkey hunt for two or three hours and then be in the office. Or like today, you know, I was in the office until about two o'clock and I've been on uh, this bear for a few days now. And so I slipped out of the office (laughs) at two o'clock and snuck into the woods, into this white oak stand that this bear is feeding on. So, so that's, that's been kind of my secret. First of all, I have a very flexible schedule, but, but just living in and amongst the public land, uh, you know, has really afforded me uh, opportunities. It doesn't have to be, you know, I don't ha- like going on a bear hunt doesn't have to be a big event for me. Mm-hmm. It can be a couple hours in the afternoon, basically. Yeah, that must be nice. Yeah, dang. That's everybody's dream job. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not too bad. Life is good. Life is good. <laughs> so you uh, tell me about this bear. I saw that uh, you and uh, you and Matt went out there and, and uh, 
went hunting for for a good black bear yeah so we were just out on some of you know there's some early rifle hunts on some of the wmas uh i hunt them at archery as well and and that's i'm back to that now but um, but yeah, I, I hunted uh, some of the WMA bear hunts with a number of guys, uh, some some who are just very uh, experienced uh, bear hunters. Um, and of our group, our initial group, which was about seven hunters, you know, we were all splitting up and hitting different areas. But uh, we saw five bears, uh, two of us passed bears, including myself. I had a bear, um, you know. I mean, right in front of me at 40 yards, uh, you know, I could have easily shot it, but it was, it was a small bear. It was, it was probably legal, but it was borderline and I didn't want to take that chance early mm-hmm. on. Um, and then somebody else passed the bear, but then our group did harvest, uh, three and the, uh, you mentioned, uh, Matt, who is a Georgia BHA board member on uh, the last day we went out and we did quite a big hike in the WMA. We did about eight point, well, not about, we did 8.5 miles, attracted wow. on my on- Onyx. And the day before I had done 11.7. And um, so we, we did just this huge hike and we got into some really fresh, nice bear sign, um, but we didn't end up seeing a bear. Um, but yeah, the last couple of days since, since that hunt's wrapped up, I've been back home. I live in Rabin County, um, up in the, the most Northeast County in the state. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've been out bear hunting. I had a nice encounter yesterday afternoon where I had a, a good size, uh, bear come in and it stayed at, uh, about 40 yards for probably 30 minutes. Uh, but again, it's archery and I shoot a trad bow and, and, uh, it's pretty thick and I just didn't have a shot and I wouldn't have taken a shot that far anyways. And I was waiting for him to come and then, uh, the wind was good, but it must've squirreled a little and he, he didn't really, uh, get out of there in a huge hurry, but he definitely something, something was up and he moved out of there. And, uh, it's such a good stand of white Oaks that I went in again today. Cause there's multiple bears in there. I didn't see anything, but, but I'll be hunting that, that group of bears for, for at least another, you know, a couple weeks here. So oh, that's awesome. And, uh, I was, I recently just finished talking to my buddy about, uh, about Ram hunting and, uh, you know, how he was explaining, you know, if the, the rings on the, on, on the horns aren't good enough, you know, and then it's not the right age class. How do you, how does that translate for bears? Like, how do you know, Hey, like that's, that's a good bear to kill, you know, cause mm-hmm. is it, is it a thing where like, I mean, it could be a young bear, but he could just been like a really fat boy, you know, just, and he's just big, but he's just too young. <clears throat> is there something that, yeah. So, it? I mean, I'm not a, a bear biologist per se, but I would say that, um, bears are so, as we all know, they, they eat, you know, they really kind of go into these hope hyperphagia or they eat a lot at certain times a year. Mm-hmm. And so they can, uh, they can, uh, I would expect that you could find a lot of variation in the types of things you're talking about where you mm-hmm. could have say a relatively young bear that happened to be in a really good situation, like this mm-hmm. white oak situation I'm talking about in the spring, it's getting a bunch of deer fawns and then, you know, and, and it grows uh, really large and, and other bears that are not. Um, and then, uh, but in general, I would say um, you can go by size, but for me, um, it's, it's a little different when it comes to, you know, deer hunting, you know, or even turkey hunting to some degree, but with bears for me, uh, it's, it's any legal bear. Like I know mm-hmm. there's uh, I posted on Instagram today, just an absolute giant pile of bear scat. Mm-hmm. But um, I, so I know there's a big bear in that flat and the bear I saw was probably a couple hundred pounds. But I mean, if a 125 pound bear comes in and I have the opportunity, I'm going to try to harvest that too. So for me personally with bears, because I just love eating them and they're just such a special animal and interacting with them woods in the woods like that is so such a unique experience. It's not a, about necessarily shooting the, the largest one. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I mean, I guess if, if there was a giant one standing next to a relatively <laughs> small one, I would probably shoot at the giant one. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, Chris, so you generally, uh, hunt from the ground. That's kind of your, your hunting style. Yeah. I hunt almost exclusively from the ground. Even now, uh, on these bear hunts, you know, I'm bow hunting from the ground. Oftentimes I'll use like a tree seat 
or something like that. Mm-hmm. It depends on the style of hunting. There are some times where I'm really moving and really mobile, and that was the case on these WMA bear hunts. It's just moving and looking, looking for uh, fresh bear signs, sometimes sitting on that a little bit. But in general, I hunt almost exclusively uh, from the ground. I don't own, um, personally own a tree stand. Uh, we, uh, you know, this property I mentioned in South Georgia, uh, is a company property and, uh, there are some tree stands there. And on occasion I will, I will hunt out of one of those, mm-hmm. but generally no, I hunt almost exclusively from the ground. And, uh, when do you, when did you start that? Has it always been that way or is it just something, you know, you did it one time and it just, you kept having success doing it, doing that style? Yeah. I mean, I, well, I grew up first of all, I'm not from the South, you know, I grew up, I've lived all over the country, but I, you know, finished high school in the Northeast and grew up hunting places like Vermont and Massachusetts, New Hampshire. And the game there was really a very mobile style of deer hunting Mm -hmm. where you're, you're snow tracking deer, um, doing that type of thing. So it was, you know, as a child, it was just, when you went deer hunting, you were walking. It was just automatic. Like I didn't even realize that you might sit down for a little while, but, um, and then I moved out West and I lived in the Rocky mountains for, for quite a while. And, and similarly, unless you were kind of glassing from, you know, particular point, it it involved a very mobile style of hunting. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it just, it just kind of always been like that. And then, you know, got here to the Southeast and just kind of continued hunting from the ground. And, and, you know, I've, I've had a fair amount of success, uh, you know, I'm not trying to like say I'm, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, some great hunter or something, but usually I'm able to harvest two mature bucks in Georgia and maybe, you know, and some other deer and some hogs or maybe a bear. And, uh, and I've been successful off the ground. And so I don't see the need in changing it and I enjoy right. it. Um, I'm not afraid of heights, but, but it's, you know, I don't know. I just, takes an element out of it for me. I'm also like to be very mobile, uh, and flexible, mm-hmm. um, just from my days growing up hunting whitetails, uh, in the snow, like it's, you know, I, I move, might move a lot, even if I'm sitting here and a deer does something or a turkey does something or a bear. I mean, I get up and move and I might do that really quickly. I run at times, uh, in rare occasions, if I bust deer, I'll chase them and try to stop when they stop. So I do, I'm very active hunter mm. in that regard. And, um, so that's the other reason I just don't like being stuck in one place. It seems right. very restrict, restrictive to me, but obviously I'm not saying anything against stands. I think they're great. And, um, people obviously harvest an incredible number of animals from them and, you know, probably good argument to be made that it's a, that it's, you know, a more effective way to hunt whitetails in, in Georgia, for example. Mm-hmm. And with you, uh, hunting, you're hunting more of like a quote unquote, more of a mountain mountain deer that's out there. Um, and this, this is just referencing the recent podcast you had done and, and you were talking about, uh, you know, mountain bucks essentially. And I, and I don't want you to have to go and regurgitate everything you said on there, but the, uh, that kind of style of hunting, I mean, does that bring you back to what it was like almost hunting out West? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, so the first thing I'll say is I don't hunt exclusively the mountains, but it is home and I enjoy it the most of everything I do. I spend a lot of time. Um, well, I'll back up and say even a few years ago, you know, I would kind of travel around the state and mm-hmm. I would try to hit or hit the ruts in different places. So this time of year, I would be going towards, you know, to hunt some of the more coastal WMAs where they had mm-hmm. an early rut. And I was kind of bouncing around trying to hit the rut and hitting, you know, I'd be hunting the coast, I'd be hunting the Piedmont and, and then I'd kind of finish up in the mountains cause we have a, a late rut. Um, but you know, in recent years, I've just really, I just love where I live and I, I love the Southern Appalachians. And uh, so I found ways to, to hunt almost year round up here, you know, where I end up doing a lot of hog hunting and a lot of bear hunting early. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I, and then I still do go down to uh, the coastal plain, uh, this property that I mentioned is down in Telfair County, Georgia. And um, I hunt there pretty heavily in November during the rut. And then um, come back and spend a good month or two in the mountains. And then I punctuate that with trips. I'm always making at least, uh, one or two trips either certain. I mean, not when I say trip, I don't mean within the state. I do Mm -hmm. a lot of those, but I mean, you know, I might go to New Mexico or I might go to Idaho or I might go to 
Minnesota, who knows where, wherever it is and whatever gets me excited that year. But I do a lot of travel hunting as well. Wow. And, uh, and you're married. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I have a very uh, loving, understanding wife. And, um, yeah, no, I am married though, and I have I have two kids. And um, but I'm, you know, I'm again, I'm so flexible that with my schedule that, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't miss much from my kids. For example, mm-hmm. like I'm the, you know, like I don't, I rarely miss like a soccer match or a wrestling meet or a theater performance or whatever it might be. And oftentimes I'll be the only dad there and, and, uh, I will certainly, uh, cancel a hunting trip for my kids. And Mm -hmm. that's something I would uh, recommend for example, I'll give you a perfect example. It's kind of heart wrenching, but my daughter's really into like theater and things like that. And, um, and so they kind of have, you know, a couple key performances a year. It's not Mm -hmm. like a soccer game every week. And I drew this really nice New Mexico mule deer hunt this Mm -hmm. year, supposed to go, I should be going there in about a month. And then we got the schedule and she, uh, you know, she has her theater performance in the middle of that five day hunt. And so Mm. I will be sitting in the theater watching my daughter as opposed to hunt mule deer in New Mexico. Just keep that tag and. Hey, time management, you know. Uh, that's, that's, that's pretty huge. Yeah. I guess, uh, whenever I become a father, I'll make sure I'll be hitting you up, Chris, and get some pointers. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I did that once. I missed one of my daughter's performances and I remember, I can't remember where I was. I was out working or out hunting somewhere and I just was like, I'll never do that again. So that's good advice for everybody. If you have kids, you know, when you get to the end of it, you're going to be looking back, wishing that you had a soccer game to go to and there are going to be no more soccer games. But, you know, hunting and fishing will be there pretty right. much the rest of your, your life. And um, and it's important, but it's it's not the most important thing. So, mm-hmm. And is your family pretty big into hunting as well as, as you are? I mean, with you influencing your kids and into the hunting space or are they kind of just doing their thing? Well, my family, like growing up, you know, you know, my grandfather and uncles, they, they're all very much into it in terms of, uh, you know, my family here now, uh, my son does hunt with me quite a bit and on occasion. I can get my daughter to, to fish, but, um, but you know, it's, it's pretty much me and my son, mm-hmm. uh, within my family at the moment that, that hunt together. And he usually gets out, you know, he, I had him when he was seven years old, I had him you know, carrying out deer shoulders, uh, <laughs> deer quarters over his shoulder. And he's killed a turkey and killed a deer and shot squirrels. And so, um, you know, so he's really, you know, had a lot of uh, experiences in in that regard. Wow. That's freaking awesome. Yeah. I, I wish I had, I had grown up a little bit more doing that. I was in, um, I grew up more down in Miami, so we didn't, we didn't do much of that at all. But I, I wish I had, I, sometimes I wish I had, but at the same time, like, uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't cause now this is all very new to me and it's very exciting. So I'm able to, to really take it all in now and it's just, yeah. uh, it's been a great time. So Chris, uh, you know, moving on over, uh, I really want to talk about, uh, the reptile thing. I feel like that's okay, something great. that like, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you, you, the bear thing is, is awesome. And, and I, and for me, like, it's been a goal of mine to go bear hunting and I ran into one uh over here in in paulding um and i found his scat right there next to the truck so i was like well <laughs> he's here but uh yeah. hopefully I, hopefully i'll find him but uh as far as the snake thing goes i mean what's what's the story with that what, um you know is that something that you were already kind of that's what you kind of already studied correct uh well yeah so i mean i've been a, a wildlife biologist my whole adult life you know i went to college right out of uh right out of high school and, uh, you know, got a bachelor's degree in wildlife biology and then a master's and, and a PhD. And, uh, you know, as I was going through graduate school, I kind of focused on these reptiles and amphibians, which at the time was kind of an open niche. And, you know, they're really fascinating animals to me. And, um, I've been able to, to make a pretty good career and I think have a, have a pretty good impact, um, on the animals themselves, but they definitely fascinate me. Uh, it's, a uh, you know, it's, it's, and I just feel like they're underrepresented, you know, to me, um, and, and this is hard for a lot of people to understand, but, 
it's, it's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm out bear hunting, if I'm sitting in my office trying to help create a new wildlife management area in Georgia, if we're out studying a snake and say reintroducing an endangered snake back and it's all the same thing. It all has to do with nature. It all has to do with Mm -hmm. nature conservation. Um, and, and it's hard for a lot of people to understand, you know, on both sides, you know, oftentimes I'll have my, my, the, the snake part of my life, if you will, you know, <laughs> not understand hunting and the concept of, of conservation and the role that hunting and fishing has played in conservation. And then on the other side, you know, oftentimes get people in the hunting and fishing community that, that don't understand, uh, you know, that, that snakes are important too, and that they're, they're part of this system, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're, you know, just like white-tailed deer, you know, they have an ecology and they live in this system and uh, it's important to understand all of it and how it fits together. And it's just as important to conserve the snake as it is the whitetail. So mm-hmm. um, I just love it all. I love nature. Um, I love natural history and learning about animals, uh, you know, again, whether that be a rattlesnake or a white-tailed deer. So, mm-hmm. And uh, with you, with you, like putting your interest towards reptiles, I mean, is there one in particular that you've been more fascinated with than the others? Well, I would say that I am, well, snakes, first of all. So um, our organization and over the years, I've worked on a variety of reptiles and amphibians. I've worked a lot on salamanders and turtles. Mm-hmm. and um, But I personally am a, a snake, uh, you know, very interested in snakes. And I am, uh, you know, become somewhat of an expert uh, in, in venomous snakes. Mm -hmm. So, um, I've always had a big interest in venomous snakes, which here in North America would mostly be rattlesnakes. Um, and here in Georgia, I spent quite a bit of time working on timber rattlesnakes, uh, up here in the mountains, as well as other species like Eastern diamondback, say, uh, in the coastal plain, but definitely venomous snakes. I mean, it's the animals that I don't know what it is about them, but they have like a whether it's a bear or it's a snake or it's a big white tail, you know, just something like, it's just like aesthetic, this like thing that inspires me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and again, a, a rattlesnake does the same thing to me that a bear does. It gets right. my adrenaline going. I see them as just great symbols of, of wild places and, and, uh, you know, symbols of, of conserving natural places. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's something about venomous snakes, but but I've definitely made a career kind of focused on on those mm-hmm. those animals. So, what is it about venomous snakes? You can you go ahead and divulge to me because I I, I want to know <laughs> what what is the interest with with the venomous rattlesnake? Is it, it or just venomous snakes in general? Is it just you know how, again you know like how wild they are? You know that they mm-hmm. do they predate? I mean, I, I'd be lying if I said, well, first of all, you ask about predating, like, so venomous snakes are some of the more recent snakes. And if you mm. looked at like evolution of, of snakes, um, most of your venomous snakes would be kind of your more recent species. I mean, they're mm-hmm. still thousands and thousands and thousands of years old, but, um, so, uh, you know, I would be lying if I, if I said that it wasn't, you know, the adrenaline, they, mm-hmm. they, part of it is that they give me like a real adrenaline boost and you know, that, you know, I enjoy handling them. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does, it gets me excited just in the same way that someone, you know, I'm out hunting these bears with a, with a recurve, which means I need to get like 20 yards from them. That's a, that's an, ad- <laughs> that's an ad- adrenaline driven activity. Or you know, if you like to snowboard or hang off a cliff, rock climbing, it's the same type of thing. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, for me, that's part of it. It's, but it's not all of it. Again, I, I do feel like they're kind of the, the animal that everybody loves to hate, and they they need somebody or some people on their side, uh, too. I also the other thing I like about them, having moved to Georgia, using this as an example, but uh, having moved to Georgia from the Rocky Mountains, you know, where I used to live, we had not just black bears, but we had grizzly bears, we had mountain lions, mm-hmm. we. We had wolves, we had wolverines, we had all these interesting animals and and we had all these animals that could like hurt you in Mm -hmm. a sense. And it might sound weird, but when you move to or live in a very benign place Mm -hmm. where there just aren't a lot of things in nature that can eat you, to me, that's not a very rich existence. I mean, Mm -hmm. I like the idea of 
of these animals surviving in these places and adds again that that slight feel of danger that slight adrenaline bump and so when you go to a place and they still have rattlesnakes say like the north georgia mountains mm-hmm. um you know it, it, it you know but we no longer have mountain lions we no longer have you know say like something like a grizzly bear or wolves or mm-hmm. anything like that and so it, it's like a symbol to me that oh this is this is still a wild place and mm-hmm. and so so i like them i like them in that regard as well that they're just great icons for wild places because um they wouldn't be there if it wasn't wild because people would have simply mm-hmm. killed them so right <laughs> and uh when it comes to when it comes to venomous snakes that are here in Georgia, um, you know, with the regards to the rattlesnake, how yeah you know, have you noticed them getting like bigger? I mean, are there more of abundant of them? And with the whole conservation piece going into it, I mean, are, are snake populations going up? Are you tracking them in that in that way? Um, so first of all. There are three species of rattlesnakes in Georgia. Mm-hmm. There's six six species of venomous snakes. Those would be coral snakes, copperheads, cottonmouths, and then the three rattlesnakes, which would be pygmy rattlesnakes, timber rattlesnakes, sometimes called the canebrake rattlesnake, mm-hmm. as well as the eastern diamondback. Um, eastern diamondback rattlesnakes are of those species. The venomous are probably, you know, in the greatest decline and. Uh, you know, the rarest and, and I don't know for sure, although we do a lot of work on them, we do a lot of the research on them for the federal and state governments. Um, but you know, I'm guessing that their populations are continuing to decline. Uh, timber rattlesnakes are doing relatively well, but they've certainly declined from historic rates and they're, they're really doing well in the coastal plain and doing well in the mountains, but in the Piedmont region, uh, they've just really, uh, you know, I mean, there are populations, but they're, they're just not a, a lot of them. Uh, and, and some of the other species are, are doing, you know, kind of holding their own. So I would say none of them are like necessarily like expanding and growing in population. Most of them are probably in some form of decline. The only one that I would say is significant and something that we really need to be paying attention to from a wildlife management perspective is the Eastern Diamondback. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two, the Copperhead and the Cottonmouth, which, you know, I, I mean, they do relatively well around people. Um, their populations are large and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't think they're necessarily growing, but, but there are, you know, they can be a common animal in a lot of places. You okay. know, for example, copperheads are very common up here where I live. Right. So. And, uh, to, to combat an argument with, with folks who are just, they're not snake people. I know a lot of people, you know, when they see snakes, they just go ahead and kill it. They see a rattlesnake in their yard they go and kill it and, and get it out of there. Um, could you elaborate, you know, why the importance, the importance of having them within the ecosystem? Yeah. So, well, the first thing I would say is that if you are a hunter, a conservation minded hunter, angler, you hopefully believe in the North American model of conservation. Mm -hmm. Um, and that model allows us to harvest uh, you know, to harvest animals in a sustainable fashion, to use them for meat, for antlers, for whatever it might be mm-hmm. uh, that, that we want from them. And, and so, and, and I'm a very active participant in that. So, you know, I can't say that no snake should ever be killed. That'd be horribly hypocritical of mm-hmm. me. Um, but I, what I will say is that we understand white-tailed deer biology relatively well, Mm -hmm. probably as good as any animal on the planet. Um, We understand turkey biology relatively well. We understand a lot of these species, but I would say that we have these other species, take some of the venomous snakes, for example, here in Georgia, and we know very little about mm-hmm. their biology. We know very little about their populations. If you start killing them, what is that going to do to their populations? And so generally, you would hear me be against the concept of killing venomous snakes in Georgia. And it's not because I'm against killing animals. I kill a lot of animals. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it has nothing to do with like, 
you know, an animal rights perspective. It has to do with an ecology and a wildlife management perspective. And if we want to kill these animals, we need to think of them like deer or turkeys, and we need to uh, understand them, research them, understand their biology better, and develop management plans for harvesting them that are sustainable in nature. And then I will get completely behind it. But the way we currently operate is that uh, people basically, you know, just are killing, I don't want to say everyone, but many of the rattlesnakes that encounter a human in the state of Georgia end up dead. Right. And so, you know, if you run the analogy, let's just say we've been talking a little bit about bear hunting. So can you imagine if, you know, I told you I spend over 150 days, that's just hunting, mm -hmm. you know, add another 50 plus days in the woods working, you know, so imagine if I carried a gun during all that time and any bear I shot, I saw, I shot it day, night, cub, sow, mm. you know, people would be up in arms. And if everybody was doing that, we wouldn't have bear populations, but that's exactly how we manage snakes. Um, and so I don't think you should have snakes in your backyard. I don't think that's, I wouldn't like that. I do have that, but you know, I deal <laughs> with it, but you know, I, I'm not, I'm not saying people, Oh, you need to leave that snake that's on your back porch. No, you don't. But, but the concept of going out and eradicating all snakes uh, is not something I'm in support of. So back to your original question, which is essentially what would I say the value of mm -hmm. snakes are? And, you know, the first thing I'd tell people is that there's a real, and you could say this about any animal, but it's true that there's a real ecological value to snakes in mm -hmm. that they fit into this, these ecosystems in our state here. And they, uh, you know, they're important predators and they're important prey. And anytime you remove something from, you know, an ecosystem, it has effects that can be wide ranging, you know, and the analogy that people often use is an airplane. You know, you got an airplane flying through the sky and, oh, you take one part off and you throw it out the window, take another part off, throw it out the window. The plane's going to keep flying for a while. You take too many parts off or you mm -hmm. take the wrong part off and that plane's going to crash. And so there's the ecological values. I won't go into it in great detail, but there's, there's utilitarian values, um, meaning people like to use, the skin people like to eat mm -hmm. them people like the rattles uh if we if we stay with rattlesnakes so there's potential utilitarian value there's the venom and the value that that has in the medical field uh for developing various uh, drugs for humans um there are all kinds of others just aesthetic value people you know like i've talked about like to me to see a rattlesnake sitting on a rock on a precipice up in the mountains just is an amazing sight it's like Somebody seeing a black bear, you know, again, moving through an Appalachian forest, mm -hmm. it just does something to you. It's aesthetically moving. Um, cultural values, uh, there's, there's just a, a wide range of them. But um, I would say that rattlesnakes are every bit as valuable as every other mm -hmm. type of wildlife. I don't think they're more valuable. I just think they're another piece of something much bigger. And, you know, our goal should not be to eradicate them. Right. Okay. And uh, history-wise, of, of since we're on the topic of rattlesnake, I mean, have you studied any, any well, you probably have, obviously, on, on the history of the rattlesnake as far back as we've been using their venom? I mean, is there any recorded stuff, like, you know, more of a Euro-American kind of, you know, historical background on, on rattlesnakes? Um, so are you talking about, um, are you talking about the use, historic uses of the venom or just how historic people interacted with rattlesnakes? Uh, use of the venom. Let's start there. Yeah, well, I would say, uh, I, I'm not an expert in this area, so I could not give you all the examples, but I will say that venom in general is a, they're, what, what venom is, is it's like modified saliva. Mm -hmm. And so the venom glands and any venomous snake are like a modified salivary gland. And um, they're just incredibly complex cocktails of like proteins and all, all just, just really complex and, mm -hmm. and very unique. And so there's a lot of interesting chemical compounds in venoms that you don't find anywhere else on the planet. So, um, you know, a lot of people, just like you might think of plants and people kind of exploring some of the chemicals plants produce, mm -hmm. venom from reptiles and other animals 
uh, is also kind of a rich area where people are exploring. And there are multiple examples. Like, uh, for example, I believe that black mamba venom uh, is is being researched to to treat ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. Gila monster uh, venom, which is a, a venomous lizard, uh, is one of the I think it's one of the they developed one of the like the anti blood clotting. Oh wow! Uh, and uh, there there are others that they're looking at for treating Alzheimer's and and so anyways, I, I'm not again I'm not an expert and I don't know all the details there. But the take home is that venom is complex, and um, and there have been many uses in the human health field from that have been discovered in in venom. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. Yeah, I, I, snake, you know, all animals obviously interest me, but yeah, you know, the, the snake thing with, with you getting into it and, and um, you know, something that you study, you know, something you're obviously very passionate about. It, it's, it's just very interesting to see it from somebody else's point of view on, on the reptile itself. And, um, you know, moving on from, from rattlesnakes, I mean, what is your, I guess, like, well, let me start back. I, I have a question. So I know that you, you talked about prescribed burns. And this is something that I had mm-hmm. talked to uh, Mike Chamberlain uh, about, Dr. Mike Chamberlain, on, on turkeys, you know, when they did the prescribed burns. One of my questions for that was, you know, where they're roosting, how it's how it's affecting the roosting if you're doing that. Because um, he is he's for it, but he understands the, the concept behind it. Is that the same thing with with snakes when you're doing prescribed burns? I mean, is it, I mean, is that completely wiping them out right there, doing something like that? I mean, is that affecting in a negative mm-hmm. way? Well, the first thing I'd say, uh, in, when you were talking about turkeys, did you mean nesting, not roosting? Oh, right? nesting, yes. And, I apologize. And, um, and so the you have to imagine a landscape that's different than today, a landscape where these animals kind of came about in and, and you know, evolved in and, and fire being a really important part of that. And so... And I don't know, I, I listened to your episode with Dr. Chamberlain, I just can't remember, but it wouldn't surprise me if he said something similar that like, you know, so in today's world, if you have 20 acres or 30 acres of good turkey nesting habitat mm-hmm. and that burns, yeah, you're probably going to kill some turkey nests. But if you think of a historic landscape that went on somewhat indefinitely and had this great just diversity of different habitat types and an abundance of nesting, yeah, some the fires, the natural fires would burn up some turkey nests, but there were a lot more turkey nests over here mm-hmm. and so, so on and so forth. So um, so I do think you have to think of these historic perspectives, but given that we're living in the world today and we're trying to create wildlife habitat um, and to do that in the Southeast and in much of Georgia, we are doing prescribed fire. It's critically important. It's critically mm-hmm. important for everything, um, you know, for turkeys, for deer, for, you know, bobwhite quail probably be like the poster child for uh, prescribed fire. Um you know, we just need to be mindful in, in how we implement that. But in general, if, say, we burn up some turkey nests, again, as the example, the ultimately we're going to create much better turkey habitat. And, and mm-hmm. there are trade-offs there. Um, so if we bring that to snakes and, say, other reptiles in general, uh, yeah, don't get me wrong, a prescribed fire could end up killing some reptiles. Uh, but there are a lot of reptiles that kind of you know, have adaptations for dealing with this. Um, and, and we can do certain kind of, uh, prescriptions with our fire that can minimize, uh, killing animals, including reptiles. But, you know, for example, in many of the Southeastern landscapes that would be highly fire dependent, uh, we have an animal that happens to be our state reptile called the gopher tortoise. And the gopher tortoise digs these burrows. And in healthy gopher tortoise populations, there can often be pretty high densities of, of burrows that, uh, you know, are across the landscape. Um, and certainly a lot of animals would go into those burrows to escape. Snakes would be um, perfect examples of, of species that would do that. The other thing I would say is that um, many of your snake species in the coastal plain where fire is, is the most prevalent or basically South Georgia, mm-hmm. they would um, in the summertime, 
many of them spend a good amount of time in the swamps. They actually leave those high dry areas and go into the swamps. Though they're in the areas that while swamps burn, those areas wouldn't burn as frequently, even Mm -hmm. naturally. So, you know, how they're using habitat different types of year would minimize that. And then even in those high dry areas, if they're relatively uh, in good shape and have good gopher tortoise populations, there should be um, a lot of refugia for them. But, uh, but yeah, there's no denying that the Mm -hmm. prescribed fire we're putting on the ground um, likely does kill some individual animals that, that we don't necessarily want to kill, but the end product is, is generally better habitat for, you know, a whole suite of species. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just important for people in the audience listening and stuff to, to understand that that's why that happens. I have heard certain arguments as far as, you know, like, Oh, why are we burning? You know, you're just ruining more land, but I don't think folks are understanding that the concept, the end result of what we're doing is, is, is creating better habitat, you know, especially when you're cutting trees and you're doing lumber and you're creating clear cuts, you're doing something better for the deer population at the same time. And it's not just the animals. I mean, you're looking at the, uh, you know, the ecology of, of the trees itself, you know, the trees need that, um, you know, more shade, you know, you're not going to be able to grow enough, you know, kind of stuff. Um, my other question now, uh, cause I just fascinated with this as well. The, your stance on, on the, uh, on the Python down in Florida, I know mm-hmm. that that's getting pretty, pretty, he- you know, pretty heavy down there, you know, in the swamps and stuff like that with, uh, with just over enlarged, you know, pythons out there, you know, and they're kind of disrupting the ecosystem. The same thing for the iguanas over there as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so what, uh you know, so. what's my stance on it or what are my thoughts on it? Yeah, I, yeah. I guess, first of all, I would say, um, I do host a, a, a podcast that you may have heard of called Snake Talk, mm-hmm. and we've done episodes on a variety of things, including hunting like with snakes, meaning like Pennsylvania, where they actually have a regulated yeah. hunting season on, on rattlesnakes. That'd be an interesting one for people. Um, but but we, what I was getting at is that we do have an episode uh, on the Florida pythons. Um, but um, invasive species in general, whether they be um, – whether they be a plant or a frog or a snake or a wild hog, to me, they're exotic and they're non-native and they don't belong. And, and so, well, I work in this field of trying to restore wild and natural populations and manage uh, native wildlife. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, ultimately, if I could snap my fingers, you know, the pythons would not be in North America. Feral right. hogs I, I love hunting hogs. I love eating hogs, but if I could snap my fingers and they'd be gone, I would. And I'm the same way with pythons. Do I ever think that we will um, get rid of them? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think so. You know, I, I really don't. And uh, I don't want to be too pessimistic, but, uh, but, you know, I think, I think they're here to stay mm-hmm. and ideally we will keep them, kind of located in South Florida. And as you mentioned, you're from there. So you're probably very familiar with, you know, everything around that. Oh, yeah. I, I would, I would say that, uh, you know, a lot of the contention, I don't think it's so much just from killing. Well, some of it would be from killing the snakes that are now in the wild, but a lot of the contention is relative, uh, to the pet industry. Mm-hmm. And because, because, these snakes were in the wild. Uh, there was this thing that kind of got labeled the Python band mm-hmm. ban, excuse me. And uh, there were a number of species of snakes that no, were no longer allowed to be kept as pets in Florida. And a lot of people were really upset about that. You know, I guess not to, not to take kind of the cop out on this, but uh, I, I don't know if that's right or wrong. Um, I keep snakes, I'm, but it's not my primary hobby or interest. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, these are invasive species and maybe preventing people from keeping those species would prevent further. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I, I see a lot of value in people having some of these animals as pets, as long as they're, you know, as long as it's not devastating wild populations you right. know, in terms of how, how they're getting the animals. So, I, I guess I really don't have, um, you know, a feeling one way or the other there. 
Um, I could see both sides of the story. Um, but I do think pythons are here to stay. I think they're having a very large impact, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on, on, you know, all kinds of wildlife in, in South Florida. And I think the key uh, for the future is to try to keep them there and right. try to prevent them from moving north. But they are moving north. If you listen to that podcast episode I did, I mean, they're moving north every year. So That's insane. Um, yeah. Yeah, because they're just trying to get more food, more access to, to probably more land. Um, so do you see the, the with pythons growing as big as they do, I mean, are you seeing the same kind of you know, like growth rate when it comes to other venomous snakes? Or are they kind of just, uh, is there like a, a cap that you've studied that you've seen that like this is how big this rattlesnake will get or, you know? Yeah, I mean, all snakes speak well. So first thing I'd say is that m- most reptiles, snakes included, have what we call indeterminate growth or, or basically the concept that they will grow for their entire lives, but that growth, but that growth rate tapers off. And so mm-hmm. most snake species, um, w- when they're young, they grow much faster. And then the older they get, the slower they grow. Um, and there is now some evidence coming out that, that actually snakes, uh, and reptiles senesce a little bit, so they don't keep growing, but in general, you know, as the snake gets older, its growth rate gets relatively low. But yes, there's a general ceiling with all of these species, and uh, and with rattlesnakes, for example, here in Georgia or, or within their range, you know, there there are certain size limits. Um, you know, eastern diamondbacks, for example, like people like to say like, Oh, I saw a 14, you see it all over the, you know, (laughs) social media. I saw a 14 foot, you know, (laughs) but like, that's just not biologically possible. Mm. You know, they're the largest rattlesnake in the world. And, you know, I believe the longest one ever found in the wild was around seven feet, which is a huge, that's a a huge huge snake. snake. Yeah. Um, these pythons get, these pythons are some of the largest snakes in the world. Um, and there's various python species and some of the boas like anacondas that, you know, can reach lengths of like 30 feet. Um, but if you start, you know, down in the Everglades, for example, if you were to see like a 15 foot python, I mean, that's a big, big snake. That's a snake that either you or I would have, if it did, you know, try to wrap us up, we would have physically have a hard time not being killed by that snake. I mean, yeah. if it, if it got us good. So, uh, so yeah. Yeah. Anyways, well, I, I hope they don't I... start, I hope they don't start doing that because <laughs> you won't be doing any airboat rides. <laughs> yeah. No, it, and I don't expect that. People should not be freaked out by it. I mean, in some ways it sounds awful. Maybe a pet would be better, but like if there were started to be some incidents like that, where say like a, like these pythons in Florida start taking some, household pets a dog mm. here or there some cats um there might be a little more um focus on the issue and uh you know and and some more effort put into kind of keeping them at bay but yeah we'll see kind of like the alligator population that's that's down there then it'll always be down there forever yep so um uh chris so my uh i guess my uh my some of my last questions that i have on here um as it pertains to uh, two snakes, I, I had a I had a question in my head. I just I just forgot it because I was thinking about that giant python. So <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, oh that's what it was. So you know how you talked about how PA is having a season uh, to to rattlesnake hunt. I mean, is that something you you as a as a, as a you know board member are you are you trying to push for that for Georgia like to do more seasons like that? Uh, I would, well, first of all, I would encourage people to go to snake talk and listen to that episode. I don't remember the number off the top of my head, but it's only a handful back. Mm -hmm. Um, and and I will say that Pennsylvania did an incredible job. They actually recovered their rattlesnake populations using, uh, you know, a, a hunting technique. So if you, for example, let's say, you know, like you get lots of states, you get like a sportsman's package or whatever. Mm-hmm. It kind of gives you your, you pay a hundred dollars as a resident. It gives you your tags for everything. So if you did that type of thing in Pennsylvania, 
one of the tag, you know, you'd get your bear tag and you'd get your deer tag and you'd get your rattlesnake tag. Mm -hmm. And so you can go out and you can harvest a rattlesnake, but that rattlesnake has to be of a certain size um, and it has to be a male. Um, and, uh, and, you know, there's certain units and, uh, those types of things. And in, anyways, in doing that, they've recovered the rattlesnake populations. Uh, and there, and there's a lot of nuance to that, that we don't have time to get into, but, but it's fascinating yeah. <laughs> uh, to think about. Um, Georgia would be the exact opposite in terms of a wildlife management perspective. There's a whole group of animals in the state that we call the unlucky 14, mm -hmm. and they would be animals that like, have absolutely the management is no management you can do absolutely anything you want to all of them things like beaver salamanders nutria um and and venomous snakes would fall in that category mm -hmm. and some of those like nutria for example yeah i'm eradicate those things <laughs> that'd be great but um you know, but I just don't think it's right that there's no management around mm -hmm. venomous snakes in Georgia, especially where one of our species is really a, a species of some pretty significant concern. Um, so, yeah, if I had to choose between, you know, it's perfectly legal to kill any and every snake you see. I mean, the way it is now in Georgia, you wallpaper your house in snake skins mm -hmm. if you want to. It's per <laughs> perfectly legal. You can invite the game warden over for dinner after you finish and show it off. <laughs> and, um, you know, versus like having a managed season where somebody can go out, they can value that anim animal and they should be valued, but they value them. They go out, they hunt for them, they interact with the animal, mm -hmm. you know, ex learn about the animal, just like we learn about white-tailed deer or bears and their behavior. You got to go to hunt this thing. You got to learn about it. And then, uh, you know, you got to learn more about its biology because you need to understand what different size snakes are and what a mature snake is. And you got to understand how to tell a male from a female and um, all these things. So I, if I had to choose between those two, um, I would say, yeah, I would prefer to have a managed harvest season on snakes because mm -hmm. right now there's there's basically no management occurring right. for them. Uh, there are other options as well. You know, some of the species, for example, diamondbacks, you know, if I was setting the regulations, you know, that would not be a species that I would have a legal harvest on at this time because they're in a, a great deal of, you know, they're declining and mm -hmm. in trouble. Um, whereas, you know, some of the other species, maybe you could figure out a, a wildlife management program that would, you know, help sustain their populations long-term and allow people to, to utilize the animals the way we utilize white-tailed deer. So, right. Well, very cool. And, uh, Chris, uh, so we're coming up on an hour now. Um, I really, I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to go ahead and, and, and obviously get an interview with you and, and talk to the guy, the head honcho <laughs> of the whole thing. <laughs> and, and just to let you know that, Hey, you're the, uh, BHA Georgia is just awesome organization. I, I really recommend anybody listening to this to go ahead, sign up, um, go out to their, their events and, uh, you know, help them sign the petitions. You know, I've sent a couple already to old Osloff himself. So hopefully, you know, he's actually replied back to me on it. So it was very cool. Uh, the office sends the, sends the email back and, but yeah, it, you know, join the, I would say go ahead and for everyone to go ahead and join the, the organization. Cause you can do, you can definitely do a lot, not just for Georgia, but for the, you know, the entire United States. I mean, all the petitions were suffered that I signed for Alaska. Not never been to Alaska yet, but I just <laughs> I know that one day I want to go, and I don't want it to be ruined, <laughs> you know, for me not being yeah. able to get out there. But um, Chris, uh, where can people find you at, and and uh, where can they get some more information with from you? Well, I would say uh, that uh, first of all, the place to follow me personally, probably the best place would be my Instagram account, and that is at drcl. Jenkins, which is at Dr. C.L. Jenkins. Um, and, you know, you can follow me there uh, in particular if you're interested in two things, hunting and snakes. I probably post about equal on the mm -hmm. two. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I would encourage everybody, if you are interested in kind of the reptile conservation side of, of you know, what we've been talking about, check out the Orian Society. Um, and that's at Orianne, O-R-I-A-N-N-E 
www.backcountryhunters.org. And then also uh, definitely check out Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Uh, it's a it's a great organization. Um, and if you're having any reluctance, let me just tell you the things that we're focused on in Georgia, just to give you um, some confidence. Uh, the first thing is uh, access to public lands. And, and that's a huge issue for us. We're working hard to prevent sale, the sale of particular properties in uh, Chattahoochee National Forest. We're also working pretty hard with the Forest Service. Uh, to help them uh, get some grants through the Land and Water Conservation Fund to add land to the Chattahoochee National Forest and add more ground for you to go out there and chase Mm -hmm. bears. Um, Also in the Chattahoochee National Forest, we are very actively working to get more active habitat management on the ground. We are working to get more forest management in 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 uh, in the form of fire and forestry or logging, you know, and so, you know, the, the, the myth that I'm trying to dispel here is people almost look at BHA as this almost like an extreme left organization. That's so far from the truth. Mm-hmm. We just finished a, a membership survey and, and we're about as equal as you can get. We're actually the, the largest percentage of our members are Republicans followed very closely by Democrats and then followed not too far behind with a group of kind of people who don't identify and libertarians and, and green party and others. So we're, we're not, we're truly bipartisan or, or even beyond that. We, we, there's no political affiliation. And again, we're working in the Chattahoochee National Forest to get more logging, to get more fire to create habitat, because that's what's needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't get me wrong, if there wasn't, if there was too much logging, we would be pushing back against the logging. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the public land and the wildlife. Um, the last piece I'll mention that we're working on, and, and another issue that everybody should be focused on, is uh, this idea of creating a national park in in central. Uh, Georgia, kind of south of Macon, along the Okmulgee River. And and we are supportive of the general concept. I love the idea of more public land in Georgia. Happy to have a national park there. But we're fighting to make sure that some of the hunting opportunities already existing in that landscape, specifically Oaky Woods, Okmulgee WMAs, uh, the National Wildlife Refuge there and the hunting opportunities there, in the process, we don't want to see those swallowed up and hunting opportunities go away. So yeah, mm-hmm. we'd love to see a national park, but we want to make sure that we can still hunt there and we're, and we're there fighting for it. So don't be fooled. Uh, this is a very, uh, I guess I would say objective organization that doesn't necessarily follow any Mm -hmm. political side we are focused on the public land and if you want access uh to the land that you own and make sure that it stays there for the long term you want to be a public land owner join bha awesome awesome chris well again i really appreciate your time and and uh you coming on here and and let me interview you it's a it's 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 an honor it's great uh i'd and I can't wait to push this out. I mean, it's just, it's really good information, and especially the reptile thing. It's definitely different from anything else that I've covered. So that's why I've been barred you with the questions because it's just something that I haven't covered on the podcast before. And I think people should be aware of it. And, you know, because those, they are animals too. Uh, Jesse, the pleasure's been all mine. Thank you. No problem, Chris. I'll talk to you later. Yep. All right. Thank you. Bye.